Hi, and from the Grio, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer. And here at What's In It For Us, we are excited to celebrate LGBTQ plus Pride Month. And for the entire month of June, we will be featuring brilliant guests and co-hosts from the LGBTQ plus community. And this is our last episode in June. And today we have a special, special guest co-host. My name is David Johns. I'm the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. And you are listening to What's In It For Us. Oh, David, thank you so much for joining us, uh, especially for our last episode in the month of June. And today I want to talk to you about two important topics. The first is Attorney General Merrick Garland announcing a lawsuit uh, against Georgia over voting laws. And we we saw some of the draconian laws that they put in place after the 2020 election. And we also know what happened in 2018 with Stacey Abrams and her election. And then I also want to talk to you about Uh, drug overdose deaths that are soaring among Black Americans, especially during the pandemic. So let me get your quick thoughts on those two. Yeah, I appreciate you making space to have me here, Dr. Greer. And my thoughts are as follows. I'm still mad about the fact that Park Cannon, Representative Park Cannon, a Black queer woman, um, I use the term safe, gender, loving, not gay. We'll come back to that later in the conversation. Uh, But a Black queer woman was arrested while knocking on the door when Georgia's governor first signed this bill into law. And for me, it is an acknowledgement not only of uh, knowledge and a forethought around how problematic this legislation is, and it also speaks to the disdain that Republicans have continued to demonstrate for democracy, in particular for a Black queer elected official being at her place of employment trying to do her job. And I'm beyond clear about the fact that this is a result of Georgia having sent two Democratic senators to the United States Senate and us having shown up and shown out in the way in which we always do in spite of white supremacy, anti-Blackness, homophobia, transphobia, transmissage noir, and all of the other things that they try and do. Um, And they're still at it. (laughs) And we should all be clear that this is not just happening in Georgia. It's happening in Florida, where just this month alone, Ron DeSantis has signed into law at least five pieces of legislation, the most recent of which requires educators to identify where they are politically. And there's just so much death that is happening in our community as a result of COVID, as a result of trauma, as a result of mental health, and as a result of the drugs. Oh, I can't wait to deep dive with all these things. Uh, So, dear listeners, you are listening to What's In It For Us, and I'm here with David John. So, David, before we get to our real topics, I wanted to just get into a hot topic with you. Have you been uh, watching the various verses that have popped up during quarantine? Um, I had well, before we logged on. I had to pray for the uh, Wi-Fi spirit of Babyface and not Teddy Riley because sometimes yes. I don't know what I would get. Yes. <laughs> Yes, indeed. I mean, some of them have been so enjoyable. Obviously, there was the Erica Badu, Jill Scott, which had record numbers, Brandy and Monica, which had record numbers. I mean, it has definitely been, for me at least, such a solace, you know, because those of us who are properly quarantining uh, and actually staying where we're supposed to be indoors, especially during the COVID, <laughs> it was so wonderful to see some of our favorite artists, especially our artists from the past, you know, come and, and, and bless us and obviously escape. And SWV was another highlight for me. But this last one, I did not tune in. And so this is between Bow Wow and Soldier Boy. And it, some folks online brought up some really interesting, I thought, critiques of verses. And so as they're highlighting the excellence of Black musicians, some folks were just like, 
But are you also promoting and highlighting some real problematic artists? And so obviously we know that Tiny and T.I. have been accused of sexual assault and some other misdeeds. These are allegations, obviously, thus far. But with Bow Wow and his problematic uh, opinions on women, on politics, on participation, on Blackness, and then Soldier Boy, mm. hyper-problematic, mm. uh, he's accused of raping, beating, holding a woman hostage, to say nothing about his uh, transphobic remarks over time. So I'm just kind of curious, where are you with the whole versus universe uh, in enjoying, but also critiquing at the same time? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think in threes, uh, my first thought is I miss the old verses in the same way that I miss the old Kanye, right? When it was mm -hmm. in he a gone, talk. Boo -boo. He gone. Uh, and I have mourned it. I have mourned it and I have accepted it. And that this is where we are. So um, I miss the days of folks being in the car, low production, just playing music. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one. The second thing is I loved many of the shows that you mentioned, including uh, Beanie Man and Bounty Killer, right? Like watching mm -hmm. them perform in Jamaica um, and then having context for stories that were not being told about how Jamaica was responding to COVID to me was really, really important. And I didn't watch the last versus battle. I will not do anything to support Soldier Boy ever. Um, everything that he has said about <clears throat> trans folks is beyond enough. Him uh, uh, paying for young children to be um, raped um, is more than enough. Um, and I have questions for my friends at Versus about who booked that lineup. Mm. Well, I want to go back really quickly to um, to the Jamaican Versus, largely because you know what what was so unifying was at the end. You know, it was like what one thirty, two in the morning, and there was a baby on stage. Right. <laughs> and I just felt like that was so unifying because, you know, obviously online, all the black folks were like, a party ain't a party until there's a baby at 2 a.m. who's exhausted. And the parents like, guess what? We are still building yeah. community. You That's will have right. to learn that this is what we do. That's but right. I, like you, though, this last verse, I just feel like, mm, was this necessary? Like, if you're really that much of a, a Bow Wow or Soulja Boy fan, then put on one of their tapes. Because, and I use the word tape explicitly, not uh, clearly, right, <laughs> right, right. I um, pull up those yeah, say in the dance battle. They got movies too that you can pull up. I just don't, I didn't need them in this space. Um, and it's not to say that they don't have deep catalogs. Well, this space also has felt so communal, right? And, yeah. and uplifting uh, and transnational in some ways. Yeah. This seemed off base with two people who were highly problematic in their own ways and not necessarily contributing positively in some of the discourse that we're trying to have as black folks. No, I think that's, and it's the exact opposite of uh, Patty and Gladys, right? Having my niece be able to identify samples that she was familiar with, but didn't know the origins of, was a unifying moment that celebrated music and its potential. And I feel like the most recent one was the exact opposite. Oh, I can't wait until everything properly opens up so we can like sit and listen to proper music <laughs> and enjoy uh, some of the, the the versus battles in real person in real time. And shout out to Patty and Gladys, because don't forget, uh, Auntie Dionne Warwick showed up there as well. So I can't And showed out. Her. And showed out. As as real stars do, right? Uh, they don't need a whole bunch. They needed just a, a microphone and two comfortable chairs, and here we were. Oh, thank you and, so much. And to that well, point, they also don't need to be showing out and doing a lot of shenanigans on reality TV to stay relevant. They just release music. Right. Well, quality art is quality art and always will be. You all are listening to What's In It For Us with David Johns.
So, David, you started this really thoughtful conversation when I mentioned Attorney General Merrick Garland suing Georgia over voting rights, uh, because we know that ever since 2018, when Stacey Abrams showed the the power and the capacity of organizing in the state of Georgia, across the state of Georgia, we know that the Republican Party, Brian Kemp, explicitly, uh, especially since he was Secretary of State when he was running against her for governor, and now as governor, has really made it his mission, he and the Republican Party, to make sure that uh, they make it more difficult for Black people to cast their ballots, and so to all marginalized communities. And so the Times, the New York Times, identified excuse me, identified 16 portions of the Georgia law that rolled back mm-hmm. access to voting or shifted responsibilities for oversight of elections away from the state's executive branch and over to the legislature, which is overwhelmingly Republican and making it harder and harder for folks to vote. And so what are your thoughts? Do you have any connection with Georgia uh, in the work that you do? Or are you connected to Georgia the way so many of us are, where we care about Black people, we care about democracy, we care about equal leadership, and we don't want to see sort of Republicans running away with our democratic principles and freedoms? It's C, all of the above. Uh, most, unlike Hollywood and the way they tell stories about what it means to be LGBTQIA+, most Black uh, LGBTQIA plus folks live in the South with other Black people, still disproportionately concentrated in the states where it is legal to discriminate against us based on actual or perceived sexual identity, gender orientation, or expression. And so we do a considerable amount of work, not only in Georgia, but throughout the South, trying to change policies such that we have greater protections. Um, And again, those of us with intersectional identities face these challenges in unique ways. um, And they're showing up in Georgia. Three of the things that I believe on that list of 16 that concern me most are acknowledging that there is direct targeting and changing of voting opportunities in Fulton County. And Fulton County has gone Democratic in the last, I don't know, 20 elections. Mm-hmm. And acknowledging that uh, should be problematic and concerning for anyone. Uh, what we all know, especially based on this global panini, is that the ability to vote by absentee ballot and to vote early was critically important for all kinds of people, for all mm-hmm. kinds of reasons. And they are, again, attacking that. Um, And then the third thing, which I don't think gets as much attention, is that there are a number of communities in Georgia that use mobile voting units because they don't have physical precincts for folks to show up at and and vote at. um, And they have removed two of those from Fulton County. Um, And there at this point is no uh, uh, logical explanation for what's happening uh, beyond attempting to suppress votes uh, with the hope that the Republican legislature will continue to maintain power. Yeah, I agree with you. Can you back up just a little bit? Because I think intuitively I knew that there were large numbers of LGBTQIA individuals who lived in the South, but I don't know if I ever really thought deeply about sort of the state of Georgia as a place where so many members of the LGBTQIA community live, vote, work, pay their taxes, and try and actually incorporate themselves in our democracy. And obviously it always makes me think of like the Pulse nightclub massacre in Florida and sort of these these spaces in the South where people are actually just trying to live their full selves and how voting rights is directly linked to our intersectional identities of oppression and marginalization and exclusion in a deliberate way. Yeah, two things. One is Hollywood, the way Hollywood tells a story, and again, this is how white supremacy works, is that white gay folks, because I don't, I said this earlier, I'm gonna come back to it. I don't use gay because gay is a white male political identifier. 
when people think about gay, they think about a white gay man, and then they also start to think about deviancy, where specifically they start to think about sex and wonder what position I occupy. I use the term saying gender loving that was created by a black man that allows me to acknowledge that I am as proud of being black, a descendant of the continent of Africa, as well as being same gender loving. And it also centers love, which is absent, woefully absent from conversations about our community. And it has always been the case that we live with other black people. We don't often have the luxury of being able to draw power from our queerness, our sexual identity, gender orientation, our expression in the same way that white people can when they double down and also draw strength from being white. And I want to introduce something new in this conversation that I hope will thread the needle, which is that in states where there are disproportionate concentrations of black people, not only in the South, but the Midwest, we were talking earlier about being in Ohio, there are anti-trans pieces of legislation that are being introduced that are fundamentally changing the relationship between medical providers and patients and families, and that are disproportionately targeting trans girls. And especially when we think about bans against trans girls from being able to play athletics or professional sports, there's a direct through line to people's hate for Serena Williams and Simone Biles and all of the other ways that Black women show up and show out. And so what I'm most excited about this month in particular, especially for folks having pride conversations, are helping people to realize that these connections always exist, including when people try and erase them. The last thing I'll say is that Georgia continues to be ground zero for so many community leaders working to ensure that we all have the ability to be free. And so many of them are black and queer, trans and non-binary and mm -hmm. uh, woman X identified. And we have to tell more of their stories and find more ways to support them because they do work that often benefits other people um, and they do it when they're not recognized or celebrated for. Well, I mean, I think that's what all of 2018 and 2020 showed me at least. It's like, there are people who are not only doing the work, but they've been doing the work. And they've been doing the work, honestly, on a very limited budget. And so when I talked to my, my organizer friends in Georgia, when, of course, all the New Yorkers were like, I got to go down there. You know, when Andrew Yang is talking about like, I went down to Georgia and organized, settle down, sir. Right. But I asked them, what do you need? Right. I don't need to parachute in when you've been doing the work and you right. are actively doing the work. And what they said was it's like, we need you to highlight our work. We need y'all to throw some some ducats onto this work, but we don't necessarily right. need your body in Georgia because we got that's under control. And your your New York people are kind of muddling the message sometimes because, as you as you stated, you know, because we live in sort of segregated insular communities at times because of you know residential segregation. When black folks move in, white folks tend to move out. Historically, that has been the case. There's a certain understanding of how to organize people, how to communicate with people and meet them where they are because of their varying intersectional identities. New Yorkers don't necessarily need to fly down and drop in their own analyses right. when people have already been doing this hard work for, for quite some time, too. Very much so. Yeah, always been the case. I, I think it's, in, in this moment, uh, in, in this movement for Black lives, I think all of us have an opportunity to guard our joy. Mm -hmm. And for me, that means um, finding ways to be helpful in a community with one another in ways that respect everybody's lanes, right? I think we do too much swerving on the regular, thinking that that is most helpful when just not respect your lane and we can all get, you know, further, faster. Right. 
I, I like I am a proponent of telling my students to expand their lane so they can get out of some of their comfort zones, but stay in your lane. I mean, I've been ringing this alarm because I talk a lot about local politics and there are a lot of national uh, journalists who know a lot about national politics and they're very smart, but they don't know local politics. So I'm like, hey, keep that lane and beat it. Now, moving forward, I wanted to talk to you, especially you, about this rise in drug overdoses that we're seeing in Black Americans, especially during the pandemic. And we know that, you know, they've always said if it's a if it's a recession for white folks, it's a depression for black folks. And we know that the pandemic really did expose so many inequities, right? Not just in housing and employment and wealth and savings, but also, you know, how we interact with the healthcare system. And so the CDC doesn't necessarily track overdose deaths by race, but there's a growing number of research that is showing that black Americans have suffered the heaviest under COVID-19 when it comes to this rise in the opioid addiction crisis that's hit. I mean, it's hit cities, it's hit suburbs, it's hit rural areas. So I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the work that you do in a larger, broader context in reckoning with the fact that it will take Black folks a long time to move out of the COVID-19 crisis well beyond what COVID-19 is. It's all the other things that COVID has exposed in our communities. Drugs yeah. being just one of the, the large uh, pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, symptom, not a root cause at all. Um, I I've I, I, I wince every time someone talks about uh, returning back to normal, acknowledging that normal didn't work for most of us. And what I am clear about in having watched the response to the novel coronavirus is that when uh, folks care, they can prioritize resources in such a way that they solve a problem. And uh, much as the case around the HIV AIDS epidemic, which since its introduction in the late 80s continues to disproportionately impact black folks, not just black queer, same gender loving folks, but black folks generally, black cis heterosexual women are dying still as a result of HIV AIDS more than any of their contemporaries. And there has not been nearly the same concerted effort to addressing that crisis to improve things for our community as there have been for others. And so my concern is that we, we saw this play out and early on in the pandemic, uh, NBJC was sounding this alarm, which is to say there are a lot of lessons that we've learned are still learning from the HIV AIDS epidemic. Let's not make the same mistakes with regard to the novel coronavirus. And in spite of us uh, uh, and our best efforts, uh, we still are seeing some of the same negative trends. Black people are uh, testing more and dying more as a result of the novel coronavirus. We're losing our jobs. We lost access to education, don't have uh, devices to be able to do this and connect and engage in conversation, classwork, or commerce. And at a minimum, we should all be concerned about how that's impacting our mental health. But mm -hmm. this is why, to me, there's no surprise and in increases in alcohol use or substances of other forms, because it's one of the ways in which people cope, especially people who don't have access to competent and qualified mental health providers. Um, two years ago, NBJC collaborated with the Congressional Black Caucus, Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman out of New Jersey, and produced a, record, a report rather called Ring the Alarm to highlight the implications of trauma, uh, prolonged exposure um, to stress and, and, and poverty and we should all be clear that those conditions were problematic before the pandemic. 
uh, they've grown as a result. They might even continue to grow, even when I think about the lack of um, our ability to grieve, when we think about all of the loss that we've experienced in our community. Um, so we should be we should be gravely concerned about what has happened and be even more critical about the process by which federal, state, and local governments have expended resources to address the opioid crisis in ways that have not impacted our communities. Well, I mean, I think there's so many ways that, you know, politicians and elected officials try and have these race neutral policies. And we know that fundamentally they don't work because they don't take into account history and some of the specifics in our communities. I think it's also interesting that you mentioned Congresswoman Coleman, because if you remember, because of the January 6th insurrection, she contracted COVID being in close proximity when they were hiding and, and worried for their lives. And as a black woman in a black community, in community with black people, uh, her fears of, of bringing COVID into uh, not just her loved ones, but those who she works with, just added in another layer because we know that COVID does disproportionately affect people of a particular class, but it has definitely um, been indiscriminatory in certain ways when it comes to black people, especially regardless of class. Um, and so that's, that is definitely something that uh, is concerning me still as we see this new variant coming into our communities. And we have yet to fully, I think, reckon with and understand the gross inequities that have existed in our community that are on full display because of the novel coronavirus. Very much so. And we haven't begun to reckon with the ways in which the previous administration, who shall not be named, uh, exacerbated the uh, righteous lack of trust that so many members of our community have for the medical industrial complex, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I've worked for the federal government and in this moment, every time the CDC pushes out something, whether it's a recommendation or a report, I'm looking at them sideways, like, let me check these citations. And to, you know, to continue to assume that black folks would do um, anything that, that the federal government or any other government tells them to do uh, without acknowledging these challenges that have been very real and unyielding for a long time is uh, foolish. I can't believe our time is up. I can right. talk to you all day, every day. I mean, I've missed you terribly and I'm so proud of all that you're doing. Can you please let us know what's going on with you and the National Black Justice Coalition and what you all are working on and how we can support? Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, and I miss you as well. Respect all that you and the team are doing. Uh, shout out to the Griot fam. Uh, for the family members, the Griot family members who don't know, the National Black Justice Coalition is the nation's only civil rights organization uh, intentionally and unapologetically at the intersections of racial equity and LGBTQIA plus equality. What that means is we show up in progressively white LGBTQIA plus spaces to remind folks about the ways in which they can maintain oppression. Uh, and then also show up in traditional or legacy civil rights spaces, read Black, and remind folks that as long as there have been Black people, we have been beautifully and incredibly diverse. Um, we focus on federal public policy, so a lot of effort right now is focused on trying to pass the Equality Act. Um, the vast majority of Americans assume that um, there are existing non-discrimination protections um, that would prevent us from uh, being kicked out of a store or um, pushed out of a ride share um, uh, drug uh, down the stairs by one's hair at a gay bar in DC, uh, uh, Google Nellies. Um, and the reality is that that's not the case. Um, there are some foundational gaps in the Civil Rights Acts of 64, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, um, that the Equality Act would fill. And in particular, I want people to hear me say this, it is a bill that to be clear will improve conditions for people on the basis of their sexual identity, gender orientation or expression, 
but it also includes things that would benefit black women, a la the Crown Act that would prevent you, Dr. Greer, from being fired by someone who doesn't understand that the way that you do your hair is connected to ancestry and to joy and white women just want to profit from it, right? And so that's incredibly important. Uh, important. Um, I mentioned a little bit about the anti-trans bills. We've seen more than 111 um, anti-trans pieces of legislation introduced across the country this congressional cycle alone. Uh, and we should just all be clear that um, uh, anti-trans attacks are but the tip of a spear that will be used to come after all of us. Um, so a lot of work is being done there. Mm -hmm. I mentioned briefly, but we're doing a lot of work around trying to address the HIV AIDS epidemic, acknowledging that uh, many members of our community are dying as a result of the stigma and shame associated with the, um, the virus, not necessarily because of lack of uh, medical um, or scientific um, access or resources. Um, and then focusing a lot of work on mental health. Um, and then no surprise, given my uh, background as an elementary school uh, educator and a college professor, now we spend a lot of time working with educators and institutions uh, to hold more space for them to acknowledge that, as Asa Hilliard said, I've never met a child who's not a genius and there's no secret to how we them. We acknowledge them as human and we support them with love. Asa, to be clear, said that just about Black kids, but we can apply it to all of our babies who didn't ask to be born. Um, so we do a lot of cultural competence work um, so that all of our babies can uh, not just survive, but so that they can thrive. They can thrive. I can't thank you enough for joining us today on What's In It For Us. And for people who want to know more or become monthly donors like yeah. I'm about to become, uh, it's nbjc.org, nbjc, National Black Justice Coalition.org. David Johns, thank you so much for spending time with What's thank In It For Us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you, friend. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcast at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio, an executive produced by Blue Toulousma and co-produced by Abdul Kudus and Taji Sr. What's In It For Us is taking a summer hiatus. We'll be back soon. Until then, revisit or discover past episodes where we ask, What's In It For Us?